When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another pre-season business edition of On The Continent, your one-stop shop for everything to do with European football. I'm Dotton Adibayo. And I'm Andy Brassel. The Paris party's over for Poch. What difference will the new gaffer make to PSG? Also, Jorge Sampaoli leaves Marseille and is replaced by Igor Tudor. And Leeds, Nottingham Forest and Man City have been busy shopping. Which players are coming to the Premier League in the new season? And what game are they bringing with them? Now, joining me and Andy today is Jonathan Johnson, who's a French-based soccer correspondent for CBS Sport. Jonathan, welcome. Hey there, guys. Delighted to be with you. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's a pleasure. And thank you for coming to join us um, to look back at the longest goodbye in football management, that of Mauricio Pochettino leaving PSG. We seem to have known about this for all of last season. And finally, he's been ditched um, in preference for Christophe Galtier, who he's got some track record. He ain't no mug. He, he saw, amongst others, Lille to their first league title in 10 years. Uh, that was uh, a year or so ago. Uh, he's won the Coupe de la Ligue with Saint-Étienne in 2013. And he finished fifth in his first season at Nice as well, Jonathan. Is he the perfect replacement for Maurizio Pochettino? Perfect, I think, depends, uh, you know, on sort of what angle you're coming into this from. There's a lot of people who would have preferred somebody with greater Champions League qualifications than Galtier. But I think if you're looking at things solely from a domestic perspective, there's no better man, certainly not within the confines uh, of the French borders than uh, than Christophe Galtier at this moment in time. Uh, like you mentioned, he's somebody who's worked his way up, uh, you know, achieved some fantastic things with Saint-Étienne on a relative shoestring budget, uh, you know, turned Lille from relegation battlers to, to Ligue 1 champions. Uh, and then, in my opinion, started quite solidly with Nice uh, before that project sort of lost its way a little bit. So I think that given what he's managed to achieve and the way he's been able to rival PSG with lesser teams over the years, I think that Galtier is an excellent appointment, but there are people who would have preferred somebody like Zinedine Zidane, who is a serial winner at Champions League level. I think that's the interesting thing, Jonathan, the fact that whenever I've talked about Christophe Galtier over the last couple of years, I've always prefaced it with the best coach in France. And I I really believe he is and has been in in recent years. You think of where he picked Lille up, as as, as you say, um, and taking over a Marcelo Bielsa squad and getting it to avoid relegation before hitting the heights that he did, I, I think is an incredible achievement. I talk about it a lot, but I think it's worth talking about a lot because it is such a, a, a brilliant achievement. But 
he's got a reputation, at least partly rooted in what he was as a player when he came through at Marseille, of being quite brutal. If PSG are really considering a culture change, is this the feeling that he's going to be the man to lead it? Yeah, it certainly seems that way at the moment. I mean, I think there's something absolutely crucial that needs to be kept in mind when you're considering Galtier. PSG haven't just taken on Christophe Galtier, they've taken on Luis Campos as well. And the two have a previous working relationship uh, from their time together with Lille. Uh, you know, and I think that's the first time in a long time that you can really genuinely say that PSG have a manager and a sporting director or somebody who is basically the head of recruitment who are on the same page, have a strong understanding. Whether or not that stays intact throughout uh, you know, Galtier's tenure uh, at Parc des Princes, we'll have to wait and see. But on the face of it, that is a very positive change for PSG and something that we haven't seen very often uh, you know, in the, the Qatari era so far. And now Galtier, yes, uh, you know, especially if you look at the, the the quotes from his opening press conference, you know, he is taking, I wouldn't necessarily call it a hardline stance, but it, it was very no-nonsense, a lot of what he was saying when he was unveiled by Nasser Al-Halafi the other day. Uh, and I think that that is a breath of fresh air uh, for PSG, but also at the same time, we've seen a lot of people over the years come in and say similar things, you know, talk a good game. For the first time in a long time, I think Galtier is somebody who will genuinely try to uh, you know, live up to, to his word, not allow himself to be influenced by anything sort of outside of the, the circle of people that he trusts at PSG. Uh, and as long as he can maintain that open line of communication with Campos and that absolute uh, you know, trust uh, with him, then I think that PSG will have somebody who can definitely keep a lot of these stars in check. What what difference will his appointment make to the style of play on the pitch, and can he do the uh, the expected the expected, which is to win the Champions League? Well, personally, I expect Galtier to install or instill, sorry, a a style of play. Yes, perhaps not as exciting as you know maybe PSG can can you know can aspire to with the players that they have at the very start, but. When you look back at what happened under Pochettino, it was 18 months of basically trying to identify the style that was trying to be implemented and then a realisation later on that actually there was never going to be any style sort of coming in uh, and, and, and forming itself, coming to fruition. It was just basically 11 players aligned on the pitch with no real coherent system. And I expect Galtier's tactical vision, OK, perhaps not to be as sexy as it could be at PSG, from the very start, but I expect it to be a lot more functional than, than what we saw under Pochettino. And already in terms of recruitment, you talked about that sort of joined up thinking, Jonathan, which maybe they've lacked in the past. The players they're going for are not the sexy signings. That feels like the the step on. Of course, it doesn't get any more sexy than re-signing Kylian Mbappe. So we've got to start with that, of, of, of course. But in terms of developing the team around him, um, Obviously, we know they want to do something in terms of young players over, over the medium term. But in the short term, the first signing, Vitinha, who can either replace Marco Verratti when he's not there. And, you know, availability has been an issue for, for him or play alongside him. Someone who, who can keep the ball, who has got a variation in terms of passing, I think is an interesting signing. And maybe next will be Gianluca Scamacca, who is... Not a Lewandowski, who is not a Cristiano Ronaldo, but is a centre-forward with big potential and of an age where he's, he's got a big future at a time when he's becoming 
the number nine for the Italian national team? Yeah, I mean, I think that these early moves are very interesting. There's also the rumour that uh, PSG are looking at Milan Skriniar of, uh, of, of Inter Milan, uh, who would obviously come in as part of possibly a, a three-man defence. There's a lot of questions over Presnel Kimpembe's future at PSG. But I find the, the Vitinha arrival really intriguing because you mentioned uh, availability has been an issue with Marco Verratti. When Marco Verratti isn't there or isn't available, is not on the pitch for PSG, they might as well not have a midfield. That is how, uh, you know, sort of dependent they are uh, upon the Italian. And I think, you know, Campos identified from the off the need to restock the midfield. We saw links with Renato Sanchez, with Seco Fofana. You know, it sounds like PSG are not done in the midfield where when we're, you know, when we're talking about the signing of Vitinha. Yes, they're moving on Scamacho at the moment, but it seems to me like there's going to be a restocking in certain positions. There is already a lengthy list of players who are deemed undesirable by the club. Some that Campos is okay with. Campos might also allow Galtier to, to perhaps get a tune out of one or two and, you know, opinions on those guys can change. But, uh, you know, I do think that there have been certain areas of that team identified that need a complete rebuild. And the midfield has been crying out for that for a long, long time. Not since the days that PSG had the likes of Blaise Matuidi, Thiago Motta uh, alongside Veraltio, that have they had a real solid, uh, you know, midfield unit with an actual identity and a style of play. Talking of a rebuild, the question for our listener, Raji, who has sent this on Twitter, is where will Neymar play next season? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. It was something that Galtier was asked in his uh, opening press conference. He definitely left the door open to the Brazilian staying. He said he's got a clear idea of what he expects from Neymar, but the onus will be on Neymar to prove that he still wants to be at PSG to be part of the project. Uh, you know, there's no there's no two ways about it. It will be very difficult to shift Neymar this summer for PSG. His contract is extremely long and very expensive. Uh, and it runs now until 2027 after its latest uh, additional year. So, you know, to try and find somebody to come in and take that, take him off of PSG's hands, that is extremely complicated. And I think that Ultimately, Galtier's hope, uh, and he's, he said as much in the press conference, will be that Neymar buys into what he's going to try to achieve uh, and that it's effectively like a new signing. Because Neymar, when he is concentrated, and we saw it for a very short period of time under Thomas Tuchel when PSG made that run to the Champions League final, he is an absolute game changer, whether he's scoring goals or not. And PSG, if they can get the best out of him alongside Mbappe, it's a completely different beast. People can really forget that, can't can't they, Jonathan? How hard he works when he's he's really on it. But I guess if they are looking to move on Neymar, certainly from a financial flexibility perspective, uh, there there are, there are two sides to this. I think because firstly, you talked about how difficult it will be to shift him. He is the most difficult to shift of half a squad that is difficult to shift. I mean, they've got players in double figures and we could go through them all, I guess, Draxler, Icardi, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who are going to be really hard to get rid of, um, mainly because of, of the wages that they're on. The other half of the Neymar thing that I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, is like, when we're talking about superstars being on the market, I think we can say, couldn't we, that like if Cristiano Ronaldo had been available and looking for a Champions League club a couple of years ago, or maybe even a year ago, I don't know, they'd have been really in the mix for this. Is the fact that they're not interested in Cristiano Ronaldo an indication of the direction that Paris are moving in, 
or an indication of him, his age, and the perception that he's difficult to fit into a team rather than build a team around? To be honest, I think that it's uh, you know a bit of both. Uh, you know, I don't think that PSG want to be tied down to. I mean, you you look at the gamble that they took on Lionel Messi last season, didn't pay off at all. I mean, if you're if we're talking about solely how things played out on the pitch, really struggled in Ligue 1. Yes, he reserved his best form for the Champions League, but PSG were massively disappointing in the Champions League. So to say that Messi, you know, worked out as a signing on the pitch, uh, you know, it's just not true. We'll see how his second season plays out, uh, you know, because it's looking like he is going to stay in and see out, uh, you know, at least the second year of his uh, of his deal. But, uh, you know, I also think that Ronaldo, you look at what's happened since he's moved on from Real Madrid, Juventus, and now United. Uh, you know, I don't think that there are any clubs willing to take a risk on someone who is just so desperate to have one more shot at Champions League glory. Uh, you know, when the, they they couldn't even put uh, you know sort of a project in place to to build around him for at least two years. Uh, you know, you look at the mess Juve got themselves into trying to do that. Uh, you know, United. You know, it's a different it's a different conversation from an economic standpoint. Uh, you know, but that one also didn't work out. You know, they didn't achieve what they set out to achieve at the beginning of the campaign. And it's almost like Ronaldo saying, well, the club can't offer me what I want, what I expect. So, you know, I, I want to, to move on. PSG could offer him that, that platform in the Champions League, but they've, you know, they've, they've already experienced with Messi that it's not quite that simple just slotting him into the team somebody who expects to be the the focal point of the attack and then to sort of mix him with Ronaldo with Mbappe who is actually capable of putting the team on his back at times and carrying them to results and then also potentially Neymar if they couldn't move him on it would it would be an absolute mess uh you know and as much as people could talk about uh, you know the economic ramifications and shirt sales and all of that uh, you know, it would be an absolute nightmare for any football coach to try and, you know, accommodate four world-class attackers, uh, especially when you could argue that two of them, uh, you know, have seen their best days now. Let's return to France in just a moment, or at least return to Marseille in a moment. Uh, first of all, in Juventus's squad, Paolo Dybala is facing something of an uncertain future. Does that come as a surprise to you, Andy? Um. Yes and no. Um, yes, because it looked like the deal with Inter was sealed already. Um, there's still a contract offer on the table, but that they can't really push forward with at the moment uh, since they can't shift Edin Dzeko or Joaquin Correa. And they've re-signed um, Romelu Lukaku, of course, on, on a loan, but on, on big wages. Uh, now, Arrigo Saki, as we said a couple of weeks ago on here, was warning them off a star front three of um, Lautaro, um, Lukaku and Paolo Dybala. I mean, it's one of those ones that's mouthwatering on paper, but the idea that they were going to gut their defence or sell one of their best defenders, Jonathan was talking before about Milan Skriniar, to finance something that would completely upset the balance of the team and upset the defensive balance always did seem a, a bit dubious. And now Inter seem to be a little bit cold on it, especially before they shave some wages off the squad, which Nicky Bandini has been telling us for ages that they they need to do. Now, the, the no part of being surprised about where Dybala is is simply you look at the perception of his injury record over the last couple of years. Now, his, his influence has waned and he has struggled with fitness on occasions. His fitness is nowhere near as 
as as much of a write off as I think is perceived out there. But when you look at his age in his late twenties, the fact that he's on a free transfer, the fact that he's going to command big wages, going all in on him, I think does seem a bit much for a, a lot. You know, we we know Juventus got cold feet about the offer that they originally gave him as 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 well. And his wages are slowly being crept back. Now, it looks as if the other teams that are in the market won't be offering as much as Inter initially offered. It seems that the Premier League interest that was there going back a year or two is is not there anymore. And again, I think that's part of the the fitness concern. Uh, I think there's concern about his durability in a Premier League context. And I, I would share that, definitely. I think the interesting thing is... We're reading at the moment in in Italy the the reports that um, Jose Mourinho is is really keen to, to to push on for him for Roma, and I can understand a, a slight bit of reticence from Dybala's side because of course they're they're not back in the Champions League. Um, it would just be Europa League for for Roma next season. In terms of a fit, and I know Jonathan was talking about with with Messi the difference between you know the on pitch needs and the off pitch needs, and I, I think the off pitch needs and you know how your club sells itself to the world sort of supersedes the on-pitch fit on, on a lot of occasions at the moment. But if we're talking about the on-pitch fit, it's, it's Roma and Dybala all the way, I think, because um, they may move on Nicola Saniolo. I think they probably will, actually, perhaps to Juventus. It feels to me that Dybala would have the opportunity to have the team built around him a bit more in, in, in Roma. I think he would be a much better strike partner for Tammy Abraham than um, Nicolo Saniolo, who, as we've discussed at length, is a bit of a beefcake these days. Whereas Dybala, even if you're getting 70-80% of peak Dybala, that is much more than you're getting from Saniolo at, at, at the moment. I am salivating at the prospects of Tammy Abraham and Paolo Dybala up front as a you know front two for... For Roma, um, he's got to make the right choice. Have have Marseille made the right choice in parting company with Jorge Sampoli? You you've raved about this coach on and on and on and on, haven't you, Andy? But he's being replaced just as they make a return to the Champions League. Was that wise? it always feels a bit inevitable with Sam Pauli because you look at his career and he's he's combustible. You know, there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Jonathan will be able to tell you um, how it's... It, Sam Pauli and Marseille is like the, the, the perfect marriage and the nightmare marriage at the same time because they're both coming from the same direction. But on the other hand, it was always going to be for a good time, not a long time because they're, they're both constantly on the edge of the volcano. Um, I know about those kind of relationships, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to flip that over to, to Jonathan, the San Paoli bit, in, in a minute, and what it might mean for, for Marseille. I mean, Igor Tudor, I, I, I think, is an interesting signing he's never going to make supporters excited the same way that Sam Pauli did or if we're going back a couple of Marseille coaches the same way that Marcelo Bielsa did they're never going to respond to him in exactly the same way but he's a modern coach who's built his reputation through a few setbacks um, who was really good I thought of Verona um, most recently very progressive pressing football 
Um, I, I guess it's a relatively small leap from Sam Pauli in, in that sense, but where do you think Sam Pauli going leaves them, Jonathan? And is it a comment on their power or lack of it in the transfer market? Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that's uh, that's an interesting observation <clears throat> and an astute one. Uh, I feel like, I mean, it feels like Groundhog Day with Marseille. You know, every time they have a new coach, they almost, they, they excel to begin with. And then when the reality of Marseille's, you know, economic limits, uh, you know, hit them, certainly under the, under the current ownership, uh, you know, it, the, the coaches understandably become frustrated. You've got the likes of Bielsa, the likes of Villas Boas, and now San Paoli as well, you know, just getting fed up with banging their head against the wall, basically saying like, you know, look what we're achieving here on the pitch. Uh, and then uh, you're not prepared to back us in the transfer, in the transfer window. I mean, look at what San Paoli has just had to deal with. Marseille qualifying for the Champions League, finishing second. And then suddenly you've got Ubakar Kamara uh, rocking up at Villa Park on a free transfer, which was not well received by Marseille fans, I can tell you that. Well received uh, by you, though. Well received by me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, me, me, being a, me being a Villa fan, that was quite enjoyable for the early days of the transfer window. <laughs> but then you look, you look at the William Saliba situation as well. Suddenly you had the heart ripped out of that Marseille team. They're approaching this summer's transfer window on a shoestring budget trying to prepare for the Champions League. Uh, you know, it's no wonder that Sampaoli, you know, just decided, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't work uh, in, these, in this situation. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of like it feels like history is repeating itself. And perhaps that's where Tudor is actually, uh, you know, quite a shrewd move uh, from OM in the fact that he's not used to working, you know, perhaps with, uh, you know, as, as good resources as he's inheriting at Marseille. Uh, so not having a huge budget to play with on the transfer market. Plus, you know, there's still the shadow looming over the club about the, the Pat Gay signing and whether or not there's going to be a transfer sanction on that. Uh, you know, it won't impinge his ability to work with the group as much as it does someone like Sam Pauli, who has seen two key elements of, of his Marseille ripped away from him. It's got to be troubling somewhat that this is Igor Tudor's seventh club. He's done really well. I'm not saying that he hasn't done well, but he rarely stays at a club for longer than a year. Isn't what Marseille needs a little bit more of a, a settled um, regime, particularly from the top down? Is is that even possible, though, given the sort of club they are? I, I, I just... I wonder. I wonder really what we're hoping for here. To to me, the big problem. I really want to know what Jonathan thinks about this. Is if they don't get this transfer window right, if they not even start the season poorly, start the Champions League season poorly. Because what finished Villas Boas after a really good first season is. Marseille fans really care about the Champions League. You know, they got stripped of the nineteen ninety three title over the Jacques Glassman affair but they got to keep the Champions League and and they hold that very dear to their hearts so to see their team get beaten out of sight in all of their Champions League games just completely killed the momentum really of of where he was at Jonathan do you, do you think if if they start the Champions League season badly how does Tudor get through that yeah I mean it's <laughs> 
I, I'd say it's not even necessarily an if. I mean, given their recent record in the Champions League, I'd expect them to, to struggle at this level, losing such key elements. Uh, I mean, obviously, I want French teams to do as well as possible on the continental stage, but it is very difficult to see how this Marseille at this moment in time, uh, you know, will, will be able to, to perform accordingly. Obviously, we don't know, uh, you know, what, what group they're going to end up being drawn in. We'll have to wait and see, but it is, uh, you know, sort of, it, it, it's difficult to know sort of what the long-term uh, way forward would be for the club. Uh, you know, obviously they want ownership who will be prepared to invest in the in the squad to, to 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 the levels that they expect to be able to compete again at that stage. Uh, you know, but also, uh, you know, I think Marseille, if you gave them a lot of stability, it, w- it would feel a bit bizarre if they suddenly became like a model of consistency, like finishing pretty much <laughs> in the same position year after year, because they thrive on that kind of like volcanic, uh, you know, being being on the edge, as you mentioned earlier. You know, that's why Bielsa was such a perfect fit for OM and why it was such a tragedy that it finished, uh, you know, way before it probably should have done because, the, you know, they were equally able to thrive off of the energy that they created, which is why Sampaoli was was kind of like a good, I wouldn't say halfway house, but like a good compromise, uh, you know, after, in, in the years afterwards, as well as uh, as well as Villas-Boas. So Tudor, whether he could make it through uh, a, a difficult start to the Champions League, I mean, I guess we'll have to wait and see how how he handles it. But, you know, the Marseille fans will not, uh, you know, um, give him too long uh, to get his feet under the table before they start, you know, banging their fists on the table with their expectations. And those expectations, as always, uh, you know, are sky high and perhaps unrealistic, uh, you know, in line with the, the project that's actually currently in place at Stade Villadale. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If I had an extra hour in the day, I might catch up on the latest football news, take a lovely walk with my dog Sammy, or maybe interview someone using an orange peel and a broken iPhone. You know, normal journalism stuff. But it's not always easy to prioritise our time, and that's where therapy can be an extra helping hand. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Untangle any unneeded worries and start to value your time for you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ramble. Time to count them in and to count them out as well. Who's doing business in the Premier League over this uh, summer period? 
Spurs have done some business going the other way, um, saying goodbye to one of their uh, own, you could say, Jonathan. Yeah, so you've got uh, Bergwijn finally moving on to uh, to Ajax, which I don't think is you know a massive surprise, really, given that the, the rooms have been there for quite some time. I know many people have strong opinions on on him. He is potentially a great player on his day, but you know how often does he have those days? Uh, and I think you know perhaps maybe the most eye-watering thing for many people will be seeing Ajax, you know, paying that sort of fee to bring back a player. But it's kind of it's almost in line with that new um, approach that they've taken, which has given them a bit of success in Europe in recent years, where they're actually mixing some of that phenomenal young talent with some more experienced players. So to bring back a, a player of high domestic quality, uh, you know, I think is, is quite a coup for them. Yeah, I think as 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 well, it's right what Jonathan says about that, how the last couple of years has changed everything for them. Because um, you look at, the Champions, unexpected Champions League success of, of, of 2019, getting to the semi-final, um, plus being able to sell De Jong and De Ligt at the end of that for a fortune, which is pure profit because they were academy products. It's, it's been an absolute game changer for them. I mean, to even grab onto their coattails, PSV have had to spend so much in wages. It's, it's unbelievable, really. Um, and you've always felt from that moment, unless... Ajax play it really badly they're going to dominate the Eredivisie for years to come and make a dent in the Champions League as well now I guess the interesting thing is last season it felt as if they had maybe even a better team than the one that got to the semi-final of the Champions League and then they duffed it in the first knockout round against Benfica Um, now Still off the back of that, they impressed so much in the group stage, of course, winning six out of six, that they're able to get a market for for those players. They sold at, um, Sebastian Allaire for a lot of money to, to Dortmund, of, of, of course. Um, didn't get as much as they might have for Ryan Gravenberg because he was running out of contract. Masraoui went to Bayern for, for nothing. So with them and Ten Hag going... I can understand why people would take a casual look and think, oh, maybe this is the end of some sort of era for for, for Ajax. But I don't think it is because I think they can lock a, a lot of the other key elements down. There's experience in the team already. And as Jonathan says, now they can afford to, which they wouldn't have been five years ago, go and buy a player who costs as much as Steven Bergwijn. To buy a player back from the Premier League is a massive commitment. They kind of hinted at that with Alaire. When you look at fee, wages, etc. Normally, when a club, when a player goes to the Premier League, he's out of reach forever for, for French clubs, for Dutch clubs, for Portuguese clubs. But they're able to, to do that. They might get back Brian Brobby for their centre-forward role, because when we were talking about it, Dot, and you were saying, well, Bergvine's not a direct replacement for for Aller, and you're right, he's not. I think they'll look somewhere else for that, and that they might bring back Brobby from Leipzig, who had that loan spell at the end of the season. But the, the fact is, Ajax are really one to watch in the back end of this transfer window, because they're loaded. I hope they know what they're doing, and I hope they know the stats. He scored eight in 83 for the Spuds. So, um, strikers got to get goals, as we all know. Well, you know, you know what? I really hope that they they register him for their uh, Champions League squad this time around, unlike Haller. 
<laughs> Very good point. Very good point. Uh, Leeds, though, have been filling their boots, not least with Dutch talent as well. Who wants to take this? Well, talent from the Netherlands uh, with Luis Sinistera, the Colombian coming across from, from Feyenoord. I mean, he's kind of the odd one out in a way because they've been mining that Red Bull route uh, with Aronson coming in, um, latterly with uh, Tyler Adams, who worked with Jesse Marsh, uh, RB Leipzig coming in. And it's, it's just showed really that they really believe in Jesse Marsh and they really believe in giving him the opportunity to work. I, I mean, on one hand, there's part of you that says, are they going too far in on the desires of one coach? On the other hand, Jonathan... One, I really love Tyler Adams. I think he's great. And the fact that they've just changed system under Domenico Tedesco Leipzig shouldn't really reflect badly on him, even though little whispers were made about his attitude, etc., etc., etc. The other good thing, I think, from a Leeds perspective is rather than a scattergun approach to improve the squad, they seem to have an idea of the type of footballer they want and the type of football they want to play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the key battles that Jesse Marsh has already won has been able to inherit uh, a Marcelo Bielsa squad and actually keep it in the Premier League. I was not that positive about his chances of keeping Leeds up when he took over, solely because I know what uh, a squad post-Marcelo Bielsa looks like from his time with Marseille. <laughs> uh, and and it, is, it, it is a tough gig. Uh, you know, it, he's a very difficult act to follow and the players are just out on their legs. So I think the fact that he's able to come into a new season with a full pre-season with the, the squad and now he's actually able to sort of add some of his own uh, bits and additions to this group, uh, you know, I think is a very positive thing. Uh, you know, how, how much they back him, uh, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, some of the, the, the early identifications of talent have been, uh, you know, quite astute. You know, Adams is somebody who's going to work well in a, a system with him, Mar- uh, in Marsh's system, Aronson as well. Uh, but then Sinistera, I mean, I, I thought he was a revelation watching the latter stages, uh, you know, of the of, of the conference league with uh, I really hoped that, that Marseille uh, were going to go all the way. They didn't end up doing that. And part of that reason was the final just looked brilliant with him. Uh, I thought he was fantastic along with Cyril Dessers. Uh, you know, and I'm very excited to see, uh, you know, what he's able to do in the in the Premier League. And I'm more optimistic now for Marsh, uh, you know, when we're talking about these kind of guys coming in than I was when, when he inherited that group from, uh, from Bielsa. I, I don't think that they're going to automatically sort of, you know, go into like a, a mid-table or potential European candidates, uh, you know, just because of bringing these guys in. But I do think that, you know, they, these are quite big steps towards, uh, you know, consolidating themselves away from that relegation zone. Nottingham Forest, one of the newcomers to the Premier League this season, uh, are not going Dutch. I might understand why, if you know the history of Pierre van Hooydonk and their relationship with him. But they've gone French. They've gone for a defender, Moussa Nierkate. Is that the right way to pronounce him, Jonathan? Yeah, so Nierkate, um, very very solid defender from uh, from Mainz. Mainz are one of those funny teams in the Bundesliga where they always manage to get a lot out of relatively little in terms of their budget. Uh, you know, and I think that 
when they have somebody uh, in charge of the project who knows the club, uh, you know, and is leading them uh, on the pitch in the way that they've got Svensson at this moment in time, they, they tend to get that absolute maximum from the players that they have in that group. And Nir Kati has been one of the most consistent performers in, uh, in recent years. And they've had a, a good amount of luck as well with French defenders uh, in the last couple of years. Abdou Diallo, who's now here at PSG, uh, you know, did very, very well for, for, for them. And I, I, I think Nir Kati certainly now has the has the potential to make a, a success of himself in the Premier League. He's got the skill set. I'd question maybe the consistency, but that's also partly down to playing in a team like Mainz who are constantly forced to try and punch above their weight. And Man City, Andy, have gone for an understudy goalkeeper. Understudy to Edison, of course. Yeah, uh, another one that's come across from the Bundesliga, Stefan Ortega, who's uh, left after a couple of really, really good years at uh, Arminia Bielefeld in, in, in the Bundesliga. And, you know, he has been low-key one of the best goalkeepers in the league. There's there's, there's no doubt about that. So I, I sort of feel simultaneously pleased for him and a bit disappointed that he won't be a first pick because, you know, he's not going to displace Edison. There's just absolutely no chance of that. But it's it's a difficult balance, I think, for every team but especially top teams with with goalkeepers we've seen in the past you either have a real competition between two number ones or you have a massive drop-off between the first choice goalkeeper and the second choice goalkeeper which obviously if the first choice goalkeeper um pulls up you've you've got a huge problem now Manchester City of Ortega's neither of those situations I don't think because I don't think he can genuinely challenge Edison who's if not the best goalkeeper in the world he's really close um and especially on on the level of distribution he's, he's pretty much unmatchable um but Ortega is a more than capable deputy. They, they will not be stuck if um he gets in the team now he, he was He's not completely a stranger to the prospect of of, of being a backup uh, um, to one of the best goalkeepers in the world because um, he was strongly linked with Bayern uh, last summer. There's a possibility of him being second fiddle to, to, to Manuel Neuer. So obviously that idea has been put in his, his mind before. But given that Manchester City have looked in a bit of a spot when Edison's not been there before. I, I think it's a really good pickup for them because um, he, he's just a really underrated goalkeeper and a really great personality as well. He's a leader. So we'll keep our eye on City signings. So they, that's their second signing of the transfer window after Erling Haaland. So they went from, I suppose, one extreme to another, but both from Germany, crucially. Tell me this, though. This is the first transfer window since... The Russians started bombing Ukraine and that had consequences, of course, for football in that country. What's happened to the players from the likes of Shakhtar Donetsk, a a team that you would otherwise have almost seen as a Champions League team? What's happened to their players? Well, they they are a Champions League team and and they'll be in the group stages, probably uh, playing out of Warsaw it looks like um for for their for their home games um but of course for overseas players uh, there was a bit of an amnesty with um overseas players f- um playing in Russia and Ukraine um towards the end of last season um post the the invasion where they could go on a a temporary move to June 30th to another team um without any um reparation 
from from the the signing club. That's been extended now for a further year. And I, I have to say, I mean, Sergei Palkin has, has, has talked about this recently, the, the CEO of, of Shakhtar Donetsk. I think there are some clubs out there using it to their advantage because they knew this decision was coming where they players overseas players would be able to extend uh, suspend sorry their contracts for a, a further year and go out on loan for a year we've seen leon do that re-signing tete um, from shakhtar and now we're seeing fulham ahead of competition from nice signing uh manos solomon uh the israeli playmaker is a terrific player scored against real madrid going back a little while in the champions league um and you know they were negotiating with shakhtar we have to assume in good faith, not coming to um, a conclusion. And maybe the suspicion has been sort of taking their time over the negotiation, knowing this ruling was coming and they would be able to, they, they would be able to sign him on loan for a year and basically getting themselves a freebie. Now, I, th- I think you can look at the same thing with Leon and Tete, for example, you know, Shakhtar originally asked them for 25 million euros. They said they, they weren't going to pay that that amount. And I guess Leon knew that if it got to a certain point and like they've been able to sign Tete on loan for the extra year from June 30th to June 30th. And now at the end of it, Shakhtar will have a player who's got six months left on his contract with a hugely diminished value. So on one hand, I mean, the way that, Palkin has put it is on one hand clubs are showing solidarity on the other hand maybe they're trying to take advantage of us and that I think is we know that anything goes in transfers to a a, a certain extent but given the the situation I, I I think there has to be some real understanding of that and the fact that there is you know as you say Don an existential threat to to some of Ukraine's football clubs we always welcome your tweets. Of course, you can tweet us at any time of the week. Uh, tweet Andy Brassel, at Andy Brassel, at John underscore Le Gossip, at Football Ramble, and at Dotton Adibayo. This tweet from Neil, I was surprised to see Sergei Milinkovic-Savic linked with Arsenal recently. Do you think that that would be a coup? Or is he less of a player than he was a few years ago when he was hot property? I'll go for that one. Um, I think he is still a hot property. I think, unfortunately for him, his club know it, uh, and they are asking for absolute top dollar. He's a player who's been linked with PSG over the years, which is quite a weird relationship, given that his agent, Mattia Kesman, is hugely unpopular in Paris from his uh, stint with the club. But no, he is he is a fantastic player, being one of the most consistent performers for Lazio over the years, uh, along with uh, Immobile as well. Uh, And, you know, there's still questions about sort of Maurizio Sarri's revolution, you know, whether he's actually going to be able to to sort of pull it off in the way that that Lazio fans hope and expect. Bit of a crisis there as well at the moment in the goalkeeper position, given that Pepe Reina has left and is expected to go to Villarreal. They don't really have an established starting keeper. But Milinkovic-Savic, it sounds like Lazio have an, uh, an idea of the price in mind that they want. He's been linked with pretty much every big name under the sun. And I think there is going to come a time, uh, you know, perhaps it's if he drops off in terms of form on the pitch, that's assuming that he starts the new season with Lazio, where, you know, that price tag eventually has to be forced down to something more realistic because at this moment in time, it seems like Lazio see him as sort of the 
the golden goose, uh, so to speak, in terms of the players they could actually cash in on. And returning to where we started this conversation today, talking about Cristiano Ronaldo, not for the first time, this question on Instagram from Dio Dawson. Is there an unknown player on the continent that United could buy to replace Cristiano Ronaldo? I don't know about unknown, Dotton. Um, I, I think, as, as we've talked about over the, um, the last little while, one of the defining characteristics of this transfer window, there are not that many centre-forwards out there. So, obviously, Holland got snapped up really quickly because of his release clause situation. Um, I think the fact that Darwin Nunez followed very, very quickly was was part of that as well, was an expression of the fact that there aren't a lot of A-grade centre-forwards out there. Um, I think United might need to go for a wide player. I mean, we know that Eric Ten Hag loves Anthony. And then push Marcus Rashford in the middle to to try and re-kickstart him again. I, I think that might be the way forward. I, I mean, if they were really looking for a player to build with, I think they should... A, a genuine centre forward to build with I think they should be in the mix for Skamaka as well obviously they're not and obviously it's too late anyway because um, Paris Saint-Germain are in all probability gonna gonna get him instead but I, I think what PSG are doing there Jonathan is not just in tic- indicative of the changes that they're making in terms of direction but I think it's indicative of like bigger clubs going to have to look outside the box when there's a shortage of that sort of player on the market. Yeah, I think that's part of the beauty of what Luis Campos does. You know that when he targets a player, it's not necessarily a player who will be a bona fide superstar right now. He's someone who'll take a couple of years of work, of polishing, and then will finally turn into uh, the finished product. Uh, It's funny, actually, on this question of Ronaldo, who's a player that we mentioned earlier on uh, in our chat, and I saw some rumours linking Ten Hag with going back in for, for Brian Brobby. Now, Brobby's an interesting one. I, I was able to, to catch up with him earlier in, the, earlier in the year while Ajax was still fighting on all fronts and in the Champions League. Uh, and he was saying the key to his decision to, to try to go back to Ajax, as well as the fact that his family are, are based in Amsterdam, was essentially communication with Ten Hag. Ten Hag saying that he wanted him, absolutely needed him back. Uh, at Ajax, and he was there basically ready to try and sanction that uh, that loan move in the, in the winter. Now, I wouldn't say that he's completely unknown, but perhaps unproven, you know, and if we're talking about sort of like a recognised, like out-and-out striker, it's that kind of profile, I think, uh, especially when you look at some of the early targets uh, the Ten Hag is looking at as well, players that he knows, uh, you know, he knows how they're going to be able to fit in, and even if they're going to take some developing uh, you know, I think he's looking more for, for players that will suit his long-term vision as opposed to just the, the short to, to medium term. So Brobby could be a player uh, that ticks that box. And, you know, he also ticks the box that, that Andy was talking about, where bigger clubs are now starting to have to get inventive with uh, to, in terms of their identification of talent. And that's a wrap. We'll be back with another OTC transfer special next week. We'll see you then. Football Ramble Presents is a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creator Network.